Today I want to welcome Martin Gibala to the show. Welcome, Martin. Hello, thank you for having me on. Thank you for having the time, Martin. Uh, I read your book, The One Minute Workout, uh, and also John Rady uh, told me about you. And he said that uh, if you want to explore more about the one-minute training, you have to talk to Martin. So now you're here, Martin. <laughs> and I'm happy to do so. <laughs> uh, but before we begin, Martin, I'll be like asking all the questions. What's the reason you started uh, your uh, profession and uh, why do you do your research into the one-minute training? Yeah, you know, I allude to this in the book. Going back 15 years, it related to both a professional and personal interest. The personal interest was that, like a lot of people, I found myself very busy and time-pressed, quite ironically, for a professor of exercise physiology. (laughs) I I had little time to exercise. Uh, You know, my wife is a working teacher. We had two young, small children at the time. and, And I was also teaching a class, which I still teach to this day, called the Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. And so the students are always interested in the training regimes of elite endurance athletes. And so, of course, that goes back to a long and storied history in in Scandinavia, of course. And so I thought, well, why don't I try some of this interval training on my own? And that really set off a a, a professional path that's that's lasted for 15 years or so now. Mm. Uh, What was the first you discovered when you started researching into this, uh, Martin? Our, so our first study was published in 2005, and that was a study where we did just two weeks of very high-intensity interval training. There's a test you may be familiar with it called a, a Wingate test, which is 30 seconds of all-out exercise on a bike, so very, very demanding exercise. And we had known from previous research a number of studies showing that this type of Wingate training could be effective for changing muscle and and things like that. And so we did a very short two-week study, but employed um, an endurance-type test. And and what we found was people could basically double their endurance capacity with six sessions of this very intense training over two weeks. Wow. Uh, And that really led us on the path to to where we are today. Wow. Uh, I can understand why why it was so addicting when you saw that result, but I can understand. you know, as a as a scientist, obviously you're you tend to be cautious, and so when the results first came in, especially the biopsy data, when I you know we were going to suggest that you could have these big changes in the muscle in in only a few sessions, you, you tell your students run it again and run it again, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know you're always a li- you believe in your data, you've done the best you can, but certainly it was reaffirming mm. when other laboratories started to. Uh, report some of the same uh, results. And and the other thing I should point out, there's obviously a very long and storied history in Norway of this type of training. And so I've become, I appreciate more and more every day, both the athletic and the scientific history of interval training, because in some ways we're reinventing the wheel a little bit And this type of training has been around for, for more than a century. Why do you think uh, that we went away from this kind of training and are we coming back again? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I I'm not sure. I I think from an athletic perspective, it sort of comes in and out of flavor almost, you know, it's almost like fashion in some ways. Uh, You will see a move to more high volume training and then more high intensity. And and so it it comes in and out of flavor in, in some respects. I think scientifically and now more the application to human health, Hmm. Uh, I I think 
there's been some clues in the scientific literature before. Uh, you know, there were German publications in the 50s and some of the first English language publications are in the early 60s. Uh, and then, you know, in the early 90s, there were researchers in Germany who were applying interval training in a cardiac rehabilitation setting. And then obviously since the early 2000s, there's been a lot of good work done at, at, at Tron Time, which continues to this day mm. in, in terms of the application of interval training to uh, to cardiac patients. So I, I think over the last 10 or 15 years, we've realized that interval training comes in lots of different flavors. And I like to think that there's a flavor that's suitable for almost anyone. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just a, a huge amount of research now that's applied interval training to cardiac patients, people with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and, uh, and others. Now, has there been any research into cholesterol and the one-minute workouts or interval training? Not, you know, uh, with, and so it, it might even start or help to just define interval training, mm. which, you know, to me just means alternating periods of relatively intense exercise separated by periods of recovery and that recovery can be complete rest or or low intensity uh, efforts mm. generally speaking you can sort of classify interval training into two main categories okay high, high intensity interval training which is um, relatively intense but submaximal efforts so you can think of it as higher than what we typically think of for moderate continuous exercise you know when we think of the public health guidelines um, but not all out maximal sprints. Mm. Sprint interval training is just that very short, very vigorous bursts of all out exercise or at a pace that would exceed the, the maximal aerobic capacity. And so there's much more research around the, the former, the hit, uh, variation than there is on these very short, very hard sprints. Mm. Uh, and so on, on the, on the hit. Uh, that is the type of training that ha I think has been more widely applied to, um, special populations, people with cardiometabolic diseases. Uh, and there's uh, good evidence to show that it, it's, uh, it's superior for boosting fitness, uh, for improving certainly measures of blood sugar control, uh, as well as some markers of, of blood fats in, including cholesterol. So, uh, there's, I would say a, a, a fairly large body of scientific research now around that. Uh, is it possible to lower the LDL with uh, high intensity training? You know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, most of the research that I'm familiar with is more focused on glycemic control. So blood sugar control measures of insulin sensitivity. Uh, that's certainly the, the research that I'm most familiar with. And there, I, I don't think there's any question that it can be very effective. Mm. Um, my, my sense on the cholesterol and blood fats is there, there's less evidence, uh, overall. And I, and I, I must admit, I, I'm, I'm not, um, as familiar to uh, you know to to dive deeply in in mm. into that specific area mm. certainly there is some evidence to suggest that blood fats can be lowered with uh, with this type of training but most of the work i think is focused more on the glycemic control mm, interesting can you explain what uh, oxidative stress is uh... Uh, yeah there is obviously some the more intense the exercise the greater the amount of oxygen that we're flowing through the system and so presumably the oxidative uh, stress is uh, is a little bit higher, but obviously the adaptation is quite significant uh, as uh, as well. So again, I think another area where you know oxidative stress, inflammation is being linked to uh, lots of different processes now, lots of disease uh, processes. Uh, certainly, uh, another area where we 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 need to learn more. Mm -hmm. You know, if if I could characterize, I think the interval training, the best evidence is around cardiorespiratory fitness. So, which we would measure as a a maximal oxygen uptake test. 
um, the markers of, of glycemic control, as I alluded to, and some markers of uh, cardiovascular function as well. So mm-hmm. the flexibility of the vasculature, if you will, the, the uh, flexibility of the arteries and the ability to um, dilate and allow blood and oxygen to, to flow, uh, flow easier. What is the one-minute workout? Yeah, so the, the one-minute workout, where the title of the book uh, comes from, is research we've been doing that's involved as little as three 20-second hard bursts of exercise. Now that's usually set within a time commitment of about 10 minutes. So there's a, a warm up um, and then a very hard sprint for 20 seconds, mm. some recovery in between these sprints and a little bit of cool down. So start to finish about a 10 minute time commitment, but within that one minute of very vigorous exercise. Yeah, jogging or bicycle or heavy lifting or? You know, most of our work has been done on a bicycle for lots of reasons, but there's nothing magical or special about the bike. Mm. Uh, we've recently done a study with stair climbing because, you know, many people live in office towers and work in apartment or uh, sorry, live in uh, apartment complexes and work in office towers. Mm. And so it's a very readily available uh, form of exercise. And we showed that people who did the one minute workout on stairs mm. within a couple of weeks could uh, boost their cardiorespiratory fitness quite significantly. Is it possible to do with uh, lifting weights? Uh, you can apply interval training in a certainly a body weight style training manner. So traditional calisthenic type style training, uh, push-ups, air squats, burpees, mountain climbers, things like that. Absolutely. Uh, I call them hotel room workouts. <laughs> and they can be, uh, it's very effective way to at least maintain your fitness when you're on your on the road. Mm. Uh, and also uh, it's a way to boost both muscular strength And cardiorespiratory fitness, especially if you do uh, repeated bodyweight style movements with short periods of recovery, it keeps the heart rate elevated, provides a cardiovascular training stimulus, and obviously you get some muscle strengthening effects as well. You don't need special equipment and you don't need much space. Uh, I'm curious about one thing, uh, because uh, some people are having uh, issues with their pulse getting too high. I can't remember what, what uh, the word for it is at the moment, but uh, yeah. uh, yes. So, you know, the, the whole idea of, of risk, um, obviously, uh, people should see their physician before they start or change their exercise uh, regime. Uh, exercise does transiently elevate uh, risk and the more intense exercise, mm. the greater that transient elevation in, in risk. But of course, the other 23 and a half hours of the day when you're not exercising, the risk is much uh, lower. So I, I mm. think, you know, for a given individual, they should see a physician and, 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 and be cleared. Mm. But we know, and this again is, is excellent work in Norway, even a single weekly bout of high intensity exercise reduces all-cause mortality. So if your choice is doing a single weekly bout of very vigorous exercise or nothing, uh, again, at the group or population level, I think the evidence is clear that even uh, one bout of exercise a week is beneficial. Uh, and and as I like to say, the, the greater risk is just uh, staying on the couch all day and remaining <laughs> completely set there. <clears throat> uh, what is the late, latest research showing uh, health uh... Yeah, so we continue to be interested in uh, the the health related uh, parameters. So uh, you know, much of our research is is on these very short, very intense workouts. And the reason, one of the reasons we're interested in that is the number one cited barrier for why people don't exercise is lack of time. You know, mm-hmm. clearly that's an excuse for a lot of people. Uh, but many people live very busy, time pressed lives and feel they don't have time to exercise. And so. 
our work is increasingly focused on trying to identify these time efficient options mm. um, that keep, people can sprinkle within their day. You know, there's a concept known as exercise snacking, which <laughs> is just, you know, we, we think of uh, snacking from a nutrition side and we're told it's bad for us. Exercise snacks are very good for us. And, mm. and these, of course, are just very short uh, intermittent bouts of physical activity that we sprinkle through the day is something as simple as taking the stairs, uh, you know, for five minutes or, or so. Uh, and we're learning that that may be better for us than sort of saving all our exercise up and doing it in a single bout all at once. Um, and uh, so we we are interested in in that. We're also starting to apply uh, these types of workouts to other individuals. So we're doing a study right now with the stair climbing workout in people with type 2 diabetes. So basically saying if, you know, these people, can they do a few vigorous bouts of stair climbing a few times a week? What does that mean in terms of their their blood sugar uh, control? Uh, and the last, there's some interesting research going on looking at potential sex differences. Are, you know, do men and women respond the same way? I, I think the big picture message is both men and women can benefit from interval training, mm. but there might be some subtle differences there in, in terms of how they respond, and that may relate to some hormonal differences. Mm. What do you think about, uh, what do you think is going to be that outcome of that study? Uh, you know, I, I, I think um, the... Uh, in terms of the glycemic control, I, I, I think these short, vigorous workouts are likely, or I hope, uh, to show that they're beneficial for people with type 2 diabetes because, again, uh, it, it, we're trying to translate the research out of the laboratory. You know, not everyone has access to specialized bicycles or not everyone wants to go to the, to the gym. And so if we can give people practical and time-efficient options, uh, hopefully that's uh, helpful. You know, when I, I talk to my behavioral colleagues, they will tell me the more menu choices, the more exercise options, mm. uh, the better. And and mm. sometimes people try to frame this debate as traditional endurance exercise versus uh, intervals and, you know, which is better. And and we don't like to think of it that way. We mm. obviously feel intervals are a, are a good strategy, but it's just an option. And, and so it's not that people should always train in this manner, mm. but certainly on those days when people are time pressed, you know, if they don't have 45 minutes or a block of time, they will tend to blow off their workout and not do anything. And I think a message from our research is even if you have 10 or 15 minutes, you can still get in a, a quality workout in a very practical manner mm. that's likely to be beneficial for you. Mm. And I guess that this has something to do with VO2 max. You know, cardiorespiratory fitness, we measure it very objectively as a VO2 max test. And you're right. Um, VO2 max is obviously the just the maximal rate at which the body can use oxygen. It's primarily determined by the ability of the heart, the lungs, and the blood vessels to deliver oxygen. And we know that interval training is a time-efficient way to boost VO2 max. And mm. uh, that uh, results from the fact that the heart's a better, stronger pump. The blood vessels are more elastic, as we alluded to. So, you know, VO2 max is an important measure for athletes, uh, but it's also a very important measure for everyday uh, people as well, mm. regardless of the number on the scale. Uh, you know, even people who have a similar cardiorespiratory fitness, if you compare overweight and obese individuals versus normal weight, if their relative fitness is the same, mm. their risk for dying is actually uh, quite similar. So uh, again, uh, we like to remind people of the importance of exercise for mm. fitness, mm. Uh, not just exercise for, for weight management and, and trying to lose weight. Interesting. Do you see any uh, correlation between VO2 max and living longer? Yes. I, I, in, VO2 max is uh, uh, a strong and independent risk factor 
for uh, for mortality. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can measure VO2 max. Uh, but uh, we know if VO2 max uh, increases by a, a certain amount, there's a concept known as uh, uh, one, one met or one metabolic equivalent. If your VO2 max goes up by that much, it translates into about a 13% lower risk of dying from from all causes. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, VO2 max is, uh, it's not necessarily a, a measure that people are familiar with. Um, it's not something that's routinely measured in the doctor's office because it's, it's, it's challenging. It's not like stepping on a scale or taking a blood pressure, but it is something that we should pay attention to. Mm. And there's increasingly good online calculators. Uh, okay. Again, there's work out of uh, Trondheim uh, that has uh, uh, come up with a, a, a fairly good uh, calculator uh, that, that people can use to try and estimate their VO2 max mm. and at least maybe track some changes uh, over time. Mm. You know, ideally, you would like to get it measured, but failing that, uh, you can try and estimate it even through some submaximal exercise tests. And at least even if the number is not 100% accurate, you can see how the number changes over time and whether you're, as I say, trending positive, getting mm. better, or trending negative, getting mm. worse. Uh, what do you recommend for warm-up, uh, Martin? Now, this depends a little bit on the type of uh, activity you're doing. Uh, if it's a uh, weight-bearing exercise, so interval running, of course, is going to be tougher on the joints uh, mm. than interval cycling or swimming. And so I think that factors into it. In our cycling studies, because there is uh, not the, the weight-bearing is, is modest, mm. um, we usually use very short warm-ups of two or three minutes, and then we get people up and doing the exercise, even the diabetics, because if we're trying to find time-efficient options, we don't want to spend 15 or 20 minutes warming up. Mm. Again, it's a little bit different if you're a, a runner or the impact forces are higher. I think there you need to spend uh, more time uh, warming up because mm. of the potential uh, forces on, on the joints. Uh, what to recommend for the cool-down period? Again, same thing. We tend to use very short cool-downs as well of, mm. of two to three minutes or so, coming back to that time efficiency. Mm. Um, you know, uh, if you're an athlete now who's uh, training for a very specific uh, competition, the advice might be very different from the generic advice that we would give to people who are just looking to uh, to stay in shape. Mm. Um, with the latter group, you know, which is generally uh, – most most of us, hmm. uh, we keep warm-ups and cool-downs relatively short in order to preserve the time efficiency of the hmm. workouts. Uh, can this uh, kind of training be used for uh, for uh, ultra runners or Mount Everest climbers or uh, whatever it is or long uses this yeah. long period of time? Uh, I, I, so for ultra endurance athletes, you know, I, I'm often asked, could someone run a marathon only by doing these short, hard sprints? And my 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 standard answer is, I, I think they could, but I don't know that they would run the best marathon they have in them. Mm. And so if you talk to elite coaches and athletes, they're still going to recommend about an 80-20 split. So 80% traditional endurance training, uh, longer, slower distances, and about 20% intervals. Mm. For those people, they'll go who are who are time pressed. Uh, I, I think the message is cut down on volume and maintain intensity. Uh, and there's many examples of high caliber uh, endurance athletes uh, who who use that uh, approach. So if if time, you know, if you're looking for more high quality training, I think you maintain the intensity and you reduce the volume, and that will save on time and still preserve uh, performance. Uh, if you're an athlete and time is not a factor, then I would come back to this 80-20 split that's generally recommended. Mm. Uh, if you're a normal person and not an, uh, an athlete, uh, how often uh, should we do this kind of exercise in a week? Yeah, 
you know, again, this comes back to a person's goals and uh, how much time they have available to exercise. Uh, person, you know, again, just speaking personally, uh, I train intervals almost every day. You know, about three times a week, I do cycling intervals on a bike, uh, and the other three days are bodyweight style interval training. But rarely do I exercise for more than about half an hour, and and that works for me. Um, if people are just starting out, we will often tell them just get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Uh, you know, and 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 sprinkle an interval training session into your day. Uh, there's research even showing that interval walking is superior to continuous steady state walking. And so okay. we call that in the book, the beginner workout. And the message there is if your only exercise is walking around the block, mm. pick up the pace for a few light posts and then mm. back off. And as simple as that sounds, there's research showing in people with diabetes that it boosts fitness more. It improves blood sugar control more and even improves their, their body composition and lowers body fat mm. to a greater extent than just continuous steady state uh, walking. Mm. Um, if you're that individual who is quite time pressed, I, I think intervals again are a good option for you mm. uh, because they can confer benefits with reduced time commitment. I don't mm. think there's any question on that. Mm. Uh, from what I can understand, Martin, is the is the time factor as that is the motivating part for you? I, I'm I'm sorry. Can you? Uh, it's the time part of the helping people. Uh, do this kind of exercise by saving time. That's a driving factor behind it. Is correct? Absolutely. I, I you know, there's uh, two ways to look at. You know, I'm often asked how do interval training compare to the traditional approach, mm. and I will say, well, there's the apples to apples comparison. So if we compare a given dose or amount of exercise, mm. if you do it in an interval manner it will confer superior benefits. So the boost mm. in your fitness, the boost in a, a number of other health remarkers is better mm. than the traditional approach. Mm. Many people are interested in the apples to oranges. So if I compare <laughs> a small, a very small amount of intervals versus a larger amount of endurance training, mm. I think there the evidence would suggest that you can see similar benefits. Mm. Uh, so a similar boost in fitness, even though you're spending less total time exercising mm. and the time commitment is reduced as well with with intervals and i think that's the message that potentially has more uh relevance from a public health perspective yeah well when is the best time of day to do this kind of exercise i think the best time is what works for you okay. uh you know i can tell you maybe if you exercise in the morning after an overnight fast and you don't eat breakfast you may burn a few extra calories from fat mm. but if you're not a morning person or you like to eat breakfast that mm. that message is lost on you so i mm. i think big picture there may be subtle effects of mm. nutrition nutrition timing time of day mm. but in the big picture the exercise stimulus overwhelms most other things and so the take home message is train when it works for you mm. uh and and you're more likely to stick with it over the long term well, since this is a hard workout for a little, little period of time it shouldn't be when you have just eaten or when should this be in one hour Again, two after three after I, I think it's I think it's highly individualized. Mm. We will meet people who are able to eat a meal and then train very vigorously and, and others who don't. Mm. I think, again, generally speaking, for most people, they do not want to be exercising very intensely mm. after they've just consumed a meal. And so, you know, one to two hours would very, be very logical advice. Mm. Uh, what I'm curious about is uh, when you're lifting weights, I'm uh, for, uh, for a lot of years, I've been... Uh, working uh, out a lot and i was having my uh, pauses and when i ha when i stopped working out i'm losing easily 20 kilos uh when i start working out again i gain these 20 kilos and i always use this uh this uh what's the word for it uh, hst 
program. Okay. Uh, and that's uh, hypertrophy specific training. Have you heard about it? Yeah, uh, generally, of uh, you know, I think there's lots of different program names, but yes, mm. yes, generally. Mm. Uh, can this be used uh, together with uh, with uh, high interval training? Yeah, I, I think? think it can. Yeah, so it it can. Again, I think it depends on the goal. So on the one hand, I for will talk weight, to people. For oh, for so for gaining weight. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, that's you know, most people are at the other end of that spectrum. <laughs> but I will know, for example. Um, uh, People who are very interested in weightlifting, bodybuilder types who, you know, they don't want to do anything to reduce muscle muscle mass. They will use high intensity interval training, one, because they don't like cardio, <laughs> but they know they they want to still uh, maintain their cardiovascular fitness. And so I think an application of the traditional interval training is it's a way for those individuals to at least maintain their cardiovascular fitness without having to spend much time doing cardio. <laughs> so I, I, I think that's one application. The other is, you know, clearly interval training is, uh, or sorry, resistance training is, is just one application of, of, of interval training. Uh, you know, and, and, and so, um, the, I'm often asked, you know, what's the best interval training program? Well, I, I think you should vary it up. And so this is a, an area when it comes to resistance exercise, people spend a lot of time talking about recovery periods mm. and should they be long recovery or short recovery? And I think the message is just, uh, vary it up. Mm. You know, we're learning more that, for maximizing muscle hypertrophy, hmm. the key thing is going to failure, right? You know, and, and so this is the work of my colleague, Dr. Stuart Phillips, hmm. who, you know, we're, we're traditionally taught you have to lift heavy for hypertrophy, hmm. right? It, it lift at least 70% of 1RM for hypertrophy. Stu has done very interesting research showing that people could lift 30% of 1RM. So what we would think of as very light exercise, but as long as they go to failure, you can see similar acute increases in muscle protein synthesis wow. and similar increases in hypertrophy over time as well. So it comes down to recruiting all of the motor units, mm. making sure that they are stressed. Uh, and, you know, again, as I say that, even with your face, you know, it flies in the face of a lot of traditional um, thinking. But, I, it, you know, a lot of these programs, ultimately, they're, they're coming back to stressing the muscle as hard as you can, mm. stressing the muscle to maximize motor unit recruitment, going to fatigue and failure, mm. and that will, uh, you know, induce hypertrophy. Now a question for you. Uh, for example, if you want to gain muscle mass, uh, could you do, for example, push-ups and uh, that kind of exercise each day for, for example, two weeks without without resting? Uh, so, for example, you have 14 days with push-ups each day. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you can. We know, obviously, the longer uh, the, the hypertrophy response lags behind some of the neuromuscular adaptations. And so the early gains in strength are largely due to neural adaptation. So basically how you recruit the muscles and things like that. And, and hypertrophy lags behind uh, a, a, a little bit. But I think, yes, obviously, you, you could. Um, now, if you look at elite bodybuilders, what do they do? They do high volume lifting. They do as many different types of exercise as possible. And so they are interested in obviously maximizing hypertrophy of every muscle group. And so you hit it in as many different ways as you can mm. and you lift very high volume. Mm. You know, that's different for obviously what everyday people are are 
are, are, are looking for. Mm. But yeah, for, for maximizing hypertrophy, I mm. think you want to do as many different types of exercise. Clearly high volume lifting is very, very, uh, in, in important. And, you know, you would never train exclusively using pushups if you wanted to maximize hypertrophy oh, of, of the of chest and deltoids and everything mm. like that. Of but body weight style training can be extremely effective, I mm. think, mm. uh, for, for promoting that. Mm. Uh, what is the best single exercise if you want to choose one? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've had that question before. For me, I say the burpee. Mm. And the reason I say that is, you know, if you could only do one thing, so that means you couldn't go for walks and things like that. Mm. I like the burpee because if you do burpee sets, it's very challenging to the cardiovascular system. You know, your heart rate stays up and elevated, and that would provide a cardiovascular stress. Mm. But burpee applies body weight style resistance training to the upper body, the lower bodies. There's a squat movement. There's a jump to it. Mm. And so I think as a general all-purpose conditioning exercise, mm. it's hard to beat the burpee mm. if you could only pick one. Uh, what is, uh, I'm curious. Uh, what is the reason some people become sick and vomit or faint after a hard workout of this kind? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think it's entirely clear, but part of the reason is likely due to the pH changes inside the body. And and so again, this is where it's controversial. But generally, when you do very intense exercise, uh, you do produce large amounts of lactic acid. That mm. is an acid, and it dissociates, and so the hydrogen or the protons reduce pH through the body. And so there's a hypothesis that part of the sick, queasy feeling that you feel in your stomach mm. is related to some pH changes because of the very intense nature of the exercise. So I mm. think that's uh, part of it. The other is issue is it's not necessarily for the sickness, but for the lightheadedness and the you know tendency some people faint. Mm. That's clearly related to a blood pressure issue. And when you do very vigorous exercise, especially in the legs, mm. the 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 vessels in the legs dilate, and so the blood will pool in the legs. And if you're not contracting the muscles in your legs, you you don't have the same blood push back up to the heart. Yeah, that's mm. called venous return. And when you have don't have venous return you have this pooling of the blood in the lower extremities and the blood pressure drops mm. and that leads you to feel faint mm. uh and uh, and very lightheaded what can be done to improve the venous return then uh, martin well it goes back to that issue of what you do in recovery and so i think one of the reasons why sometimes an active recovery is preferred mm. is the even that light muscle contraction of the legs it helps literally to squeeze the, the veins So the muscles contract, it squeeze the veins, and that pushes the blood back up to the heart and the head, and that will help prevent the feelings of, of lightheadedness and, and potential risk of fainting. Interesting. I mean, know that the heart is a muscle. So what uh, do you want to recommend for, let's say, for example, if you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you haven't done any exercise in your life? Yeah, again, I th I think obviously I would come back to number one, check with your physician, right? You want to make sure there's no, and, and to give you a very specific example of that, mm. the people that we're doing right now who have diabetes, many are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Mm. And so as part of our ethics procedure, they all go for a cardiac stress test. 
and a number of them are not cleared for vigorous exercise because there's some underlying silent factor that turns up on the stress test. And so I think that's mm. where obviously you want to be smart mm. and on an individual level, make sure the type of exercise is, is suited uh, for for you. Mm. But in saying that, people don't need to be afraid of exercise. And, and you know, I come back to at the population mm. level, mm. remaining sedentary is the much greater risk. And mm. so if you're just starting out, I think you want to be smart. And I would use that idea of just walking and maybe even gentle interval walking. You know, mm. we are not talking about vigorous exercise by any means here. And so starting with walking is a very easy and simple thing that you could do. Mm. And a bit of interval walking where you're just picking up the pace slightly. We call it just getting out of your comfort zone a little mm. bit. Uh, that's effective. And I point to the research on the people with diabetes and other groups now showing that that uh, is likely to be more effective at mm. boosting uh, boosting fitness. Uh, as a beginner, Martin, for, for this kind of exercise, uh, what should I expect to see as a result and when? Yeah, you can see changes very, very quickly. And so in our studies, even within one to two weeks, you know, people, this is... Um, uh, There's a trade-off, of course, between the intensity and how uncomfortable the exercise feels. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think when you're starting out, you you don't want to be doing these very vigorous workouts because, I mean, let's be let's face facts. This can be an uncomfortable form of training for people. And, and that's why just gently getting out of your comfort zone effect uh, is, is effective. Mm -hmm. But you can see adaptation very, very quickly. And so in our studies, if we're doing a six or 12 week study, even within one to two weeks, we have to reassess the workload that the people can do because they attend to a adapt very, very quickly. Uh, and, and there's, you know, one of the ideas of why interval training may be effective or more enjoyable for some people mm. is they get that immediate boost in their fitness mm. and that makes other activities of daily living seem easier. So suddenly it's a bit easier to take the stairs mm. or to carry your groceries from the car or up to your second floor apartment mm. because the fitness boost is, is, is quite quick. Mm. Um, and we also know that from an overall risk benefit, there's immense benefit with just the, the starting changes in fitness. So going from completely sedentary to even moderately active provides a lot of benefit. Uh, uh, if you are stressed, Martin, will it help to do this kind of exercise regimen or, pro or yeah, program? I Yes, I, I think, you know, we're learning more about exercise and brain health uh, and things like that. Um, I, I think there's clearly uh, a, a stress reduction effect and you can make lots of theories related to endorphins and things like that. But I think there's no question that mm. there's good evidence now exercise can help to to relieve and alleviate stress. Mm. There's some interesting research at my university going on where they're testing students in a very large introductory psychology class. And they're having some of the students do exercise breaks during the classes. And they're finding that learning outcomes are actually improved and enhanced. So uh, again, I think there's good evidence there. Uh, you know, we need to know a lot about specific dose and intensity and everything like that. Mm. But I think it's clear that exercise can help to reduce stress and even promote learning. Mm. It's very interesting. And I think uh, John Rady uh, told about it in uh, the book Spark. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there, I was just going to say there's, uh, you know, even using imaging techniques, they're looking at how the brain literally remodels uh, with, with exercise. So there's okay. some very fascinating research, not just on the behavioral side, but on the structural side as, wow. as, as well. Oh, can you tell more about it? Do you know anything more about it? 
I, you know, the, I know there's just some of this research is being started, but showing, you know, some changes using uh, these uh, imaging techniques. And you can literally see some some growth of, of, of neurons in that in response to uh, more physical activity in that. So it's, you know, it's not just the cardiovascular and the muscular systems that uh, that benefit. There's lots the of other systems that can benefit as well. So the brain as well, obviously. So. Don't you think that's very interesting, uh, Martin, that we see improvement in learning when we do the exercise before, for example? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it speaks to uh, exercise is medicine, right? And, mm. and, you know, we hear that term, but uh, it, it's a medicine, I think, that uh, has very few negative side effects. Obviously, mm. if you're an athlete, you can overtrain, mm. but uh, generally it's, uh, it's a quite cheap form of medicine. Mm. Uh, the dose has to be tailored for individuals, but it can be extremely effective. I have another colleague, Mark Tarnopolsky, who has done some really interesting research with, uh, now this is animal research, but they have uh, an aging mouse model. So this is a, a mouse that gets old very quickly. It, it, ha, you know, it, it deteriorates very quickly. And they've done some research where they just will exercise these mice. Hmm. And they basically can reverse the effects of aging or at least attenuate the age-related decline in these animals that predisposed for aging just by having them exercise and then they've done all of these measurements on their fur on their skin on their <laughs> on their testes and basically showing that all of these um, physiological systems are are better off because of the exercise so it's it, it's quite fascinating i think the multitude of of benefits mm. that exercise can have on the system yeah have it been studied uh, the, what happens with the igf1 or igf when we do this kind of exercise uh, i i'm not specifically familiar with interval exercise uh Per se, obviously, there's some research around uh, resistance training and, and, and IGF-1, uh, but uh, I don't know specifically the interval training effects. Mm. And what, what do you think from, uh, from your standpoint and from your experience? You know, I, 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 I think, again, I would come back to the, some of the research of my colleague, Dr. Stuart Phillips, who has uh, been doing some interesting research on, on hormones. And clearly, hormones are very important in terms of how they regulate the body. But I think sometimes we can overstate effects as well. Mm. And, you know, we think, for example, or a, a, a school of thought is we lift heavy, heavy resistance exercise causes these hormonal changes, and that induces all of the hypertrophy effects. Uh, Stu has been doing some interesting research where they try and manipulate hormone levels and show that, uh, you know, maybe it's more a correlation as opposed to a causation. And, mm. and, and so you can still keep hormone levels quite low mm. and still have very significant uh, hy hypertrophy. Mm. So I think we still have uh, some things to learn mm. about uh, hormones. And I think sometimes we can uh, pinpoint one specific compound and, and, and think that it's sort of the magic compound or we put all of our uh, focus on, on that particular one. And, mm. you know, there, there's no magic bullets. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's usually multiple, um, multiple pathways, multiple mm. proteins involved, multiple hormones in terms of, uh, eliciting all of these beneficial effects. Uh, will this kind of exercise uh, increase the cortisol levels? Uh, I, I just think about people that experience anxiety, for example, that already have raised uh, cortisol levels. Yeah, I, I, I you know, again, I, I, I'm not an endocrinologist, but I think, uh, you know, the research would suggest that the more intense the exercise, the greater the potential increase in in cortisol. Mm. The significance of that, I'm 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 not sure. I, mm. I, I I think it probably depends on the overall duration of the increase in cortisol. Some of these changes can be quite quick. 
So you have a rapid increase and then a, a reduction. Hmm. Uh, we know that exercise training, the more fit you are, the hormonal disturbances tend to be attenuated uh, or down a little bit. Hmm. And so, you know, in a lot of these cases, um, we talk about a U or a J-shaped relationship where doing too little is bad, hmm. doing too much is bad, hmm. but there's a very optimal point in in the middle there and so i think when it comes to especially these hormonal changes mm-hmm. it's maybe the same story you know completely sedentary is is not good uh, mm-hmm. overtraining is is not good but there's a large uh middle uh where that's a beneficial zone to to work in mm. uh what is a uh, mitochondria then uh, morty Yeah, we know a lot about mitochondria, and it's been a very primary focus in our laboratory. Uh, we know that interval training is very potent to boost mitochondrial content. Uh, so much like the cardiovascular adaptation, I think when you do interval exercise that's work-matched to the traditional approach, you can see greater increases in mitochondria. Uh, we've been doing some interesting studies in our laboratory where we're making comparisons uh, between legs within the same individual. Uh, because you know, one of the things with training studies is you might respond differently from me. Hmm. Is that because of your underlying physiology that is different from mine or is it related to the training program? But when you make comparisons within the same individual, the starting physiology is the same. And so we've had people train one leg in an interval manner and the other leg in a continuous manner. And even though the time is matched, the overall amount of exercise is matched, we see greater increases in mitochondrial content with the interval-based uh, approach. Uh, <laughs> Seriously? So, yeah, you uh, absolutely. And uh, so I, I think that suggests to me that intensity is important and maybe even the intermittent nature is important as well. So we talk about these rest-to-work transitions. Hmm. And so maybe these transitions and repeatedly having these transitions during exercise are, 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 are part of the, the story in terms of what leads to the adaptation. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, My question is, why is the mitochondria important, Martin? Yeah, so people have a good sense of the cardiovascular system and cardio health. Mm. Uh, mitochondria, I like to think of them as a good marker of muscle health. Uh, mitochondria are the parts of the cell that use the oxygen to burn fuels like sugars and fats to produce energy. Uh, if you have more mitochondria, you're a better endurance athlete. But if you have more mitochondria, your risk for developing type 2 diabetes is lower, for example. And so boosting mitochondrial content uh, is important for performance, and it's also important uh, for for overall health hmm. because you are able to basically produce exercise, sorry, produce energy uh, more more efficiently hmm. uh, and uh, and burn fuels more efficiently. How can it be measured? Uh, that's the tough part. Uh, to measure it directly, you need to take a muscle biopsy, uh, and that's obviously not something that is uh, widely uh, practiced <laughs> by, by everyone. No one wants to go into the doctor's office and get a biopsy just to measure their mitochondrial content. So that's how we typically measure it in our studies. It's a very invasive uh, uh, measurement, and we get a sense. But there's also ways to predict or estimate mitochondrial uh, content. It correlates quite close with uh, an athlete's lactate threshold. You may hear that uh, term. And so if you do, there's some ways to do some submaximal exercise tests. And if improvement in submaximal exercise performance goes up, uh, that's, you know, a, a sign that you have some changes or improvements in uh, in mitochondrial uh, content uh, as, as well. Uh, as the last question, Martin, can I give you five reasons to do the interval training? 
(laughs) (laughs) Sure. So I I, I would say number one, and, you know, life is an interval exercise. So rarely during life do we just sort of go along all day at a steady, steady pace, right? We have to climb the stairs. We might have to sprint for the subway to catch it. Uh, And so I think in a lot of ways, intervals more resemble life with these constant changes in uh, in workload through the day. Interesting. Number two, I would say it's this idea of uh, time efficiency and, you know, whether it's true or whether it's an excuse, um, the main reason cited for why people are not active is time. And so I think intervals clearly provide a time efficient way that people can boost their health uh, and fitness. Uh, Number three. Uh, You know, going back to this whole idea of enjoyment, clearly some people will not like this type of training. But if you look at how children play in a playground, Mm. they don't sort of jog in place at a steady, steady (laughs) state. They run and they jump and they take a break. And so, you know, it's been pointed out that perhaps interval exercise more resembles natural play. And this Mm. might be a reason why uh, some people find it more, um, uh, more, more, more beneficial Mm. uh, or at least more, uh, more enjoyable. Mm. Um, those are three. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have two more? Two more? Yeah. You, you know, I, I, I think, um, we know that interval exercise, uh, coming back to this idea of exercise snacking. And so, uh, we like to say that intervals provide more opportunities to fit exercise within your day or your life mm. rather than having to structure your life. Uh, around exercise, Mm. because it doesn't necessarily demand this very large block of time. And probably the last one is the basic principle of interval training. It can be applied in many different manners. So, you know, a lot of us think of it in terms of structured exercise, but I mean, dancing is a form of interval exercise. You know, there's many different ways that you can just have this basic notion of alternating periods of more intense effort and then periods of recovery. Mm. You can apply it to cardio exercise. You can apply it to resistance exercise and you can apply it just through uh, your normal activities uh, through stair climbing, as uh, as I mentioned. Mm. Where can people follow in the social media? Then, uh... Yeah, so I, I am on Twitter at Gabala M. So that's G-I-B-A-L-A-M. Uh, that's probably the best site. If they want to tweet any questions at me, I'm happy to try and uh, answer them. Uh, I'm getting a website up and going. It's it's not there uh, right now. Or they could find me through uh, McMaster University, which is my home institution. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Martin. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Oh, it was a, it was a pleasure from my, from my side. Thank you so much.